Okay, we're live. Thanks everyone for joining. Um, we're joined today by uh, Nicolas Collin from The Family. Um, Nicolas was previously a civil servant uh, and a professor at Sciences Po. Since 2013, he's been running The Family, an incubator of French origin, uh, now accepting applicants worldwide, uh, if I'm right, and backed by LGT Lightstone. Nicolas writes an excellent newsletter called European Straits pretty much every day. Um, and curates Capital Call together with Willie Braun and Vincent Toutaille-Thomas. He's also a regular columnist for Sifted, uh, a member of the board of directors at Radio France, and has previously written for Forbes and Le Monde. Um, Nicolas, welcome. Great to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you. Um, as, as I've discussed, we'd, we'd like to sort of cover a, a few pieces today. I think first it'd be great to hear a bit about you and the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll sort of dig into your investment thesis and how you think about what you refer to as the entrepreneurial age in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a bit more broadly about the ecosystem and the challenges we face. And then we'll maybe also touch on um, sort of social policy and the social safety net uh, in, in the entrepreneurial age and the stuff that you, you discuss in your, in your book, Hedge, which I'm bar- embarrassed to say I haven't read, but I watched your conversation with uh, Sandro from Stripe. Uh, oh, yeah. Which, which was, which was very interesting. Um, so yeah, if you could start by sort of telling us a bit, a bit about yourself. You were born in, in Normandy, right? Yes. I was born in Normandy in a, um, to, in a city called Le Havre, which is near the sea. Uh, grew up there. Um, then moved with my family to various other places in France, never Paris, actually. Um, I ended up uh, studying like every good student in France, mostly mathematics and physics and chemistry, mm. ended up in a engineering school back in the 90s, where I specialized in computer science. And what what was interesting uh, at the time was that, uh, so the French system is that you work hard and you're assessed through very competitive exams and you end up with a certain number of points which determine which school exactly you, you, you're going to join. And so you can end up in a, in very different engineering schools uh, with very different specialties, but fate decided that I would end up in one that, that was focused on computer science, which was good because at the time, the 90s, it was exactly the period uh, of the dot-com bubble. And mm. so although it was France, far away from the Bay Area in the US. We were hearing all day long about this new economy and those these startups that were booming and the NASDAQ and stuff. And we were uh, already surfing using the internet uh, through sun workstations, actually, but at a rather high um, speed. So mm. but the Rather, uh, rather unusual experience of using the internet at the time. Right. So the internet was very familiar. It was a day-to-day um, um, experience for us. And we were all rejoicing in the idea that we would join this economy and make a lot of money and work on interesting things and make the world a better place or uh, whatever. And then when we finally graduated, so my class... That was in 2000, which is exactly the time when the bubble burst and all this world of opportunities and, you know, hope and, 
and and a new horizon was wiped out in an instant. And so mm-hmm. what actually happened at the time is that a lot of people ended up depressed. Like I was sold that I would join this, you know, this new thing. And when I'm finally here available to find a job on the on the on the job market, all that's left is I can work in IT services or I can join a telco or I can uh, join a manufacturer like Alcatel or Nokia or whatever. And so a lot of people were depressed by, you know, the radical change in terms of perspectives and decided to either switch careers or keep studying, uh, which actually I did. So I, that's when I went to Sciences Po to study. So Sciences Po, for those of you who are in the UK, it's the French equivalent of the LSE. Um, it's a one-of-a-kind institution mm-hmm. where you learn economics, law, political science, and you, uh, it's a springboard for joining either journalism or politics or um, the civil service. The civil- is, is, that, is that one of the grand écoles or whatever they, they call them? Is it or? Yes, well, grand école is a, is a loose category. It's, Whatever is prestigious and is not a university per se is a grand école. Right. Fact. Okay. So right, right, right. you have grand école for engineering. So I, I went to one. Um, you have grand école, um, for becoming a university professor. That's Ecole Normale Supérieure. Right. And Sciences Po would qualify as a grand école, but. Right. Um, fo- focused on, on sort of political science and. and... Yes. And in the middle of Paris. So, so for me, it was, it was, uh, exciting for two reasons to, 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 to go to Sciences Po. First, I, I've always been interested in politics. And so joining that particular institution was a way to get closer to that world uh, with which I had no connection. Mm. And second, uh, it was my first time in Paris, actually. So I had lived only in, um, the province, uh, in France, either right. in Normandy or Brittany or, other parts of France. And so for the first time, I was, um, uh, I was actually living in Paris. So that was in 2000. And so because I was a good student at Sciences Po, I passed the competitive exams to join the highest ranks of the French civil service. So which means going to another grand école called uh, ENA, Ecole Nationale d'Administration. Right. Um, and, and there I was still very good and obviously doing things that I liked. So, which was very rewarding and stimulating. So I ranked close to the top and joined, um, what we call a French, French in France, uh, grand corps. So grandes écoles, grand corps, uh, grand corps literally means great body. It's, uh, it's a small number of entities or departments in the French government that attract the most, um, well, the best and the brightest or the most ambitious people because they they advance your career like mm. no other place. Mm. So I, I ended up joining one of these departments, one of these grand corps in the French Ministry of Finance, so um, like the Treasury Department. Uh, and it's a kind of a special department called um, Special um, servi- uh, Service or Entity within the department called the Inspection Générale des Finances, which is a kind of internal McKinsey for the ministry, Minister mm. of Finance. Mm. So the way you should explain it is that when the minister is confronted with a problem that is too tough, too complicated, too com- um, 
the, the ordinary civil servants don't really have the time and the focus and the ability to solve it. And so that's when they ask the inspection to form a task force and dig in depth into that problem and come up with a report that offers a solution. Mm. And so it's really a special place in the French government because it's a place where you're never bothered by the day-to-day contingencies. You, you have the unique opportunity to go, to focus on one problem only over the course of several months. Uh, And the end goal is to write a report that's usually kept confidential. Um, And it's only for the minister and his, and their advisor to see. Mm. And so you, what you do um, is you work there for four, four years. That's the contract. And after four years, you, they kick you out and they force you to um, <laughs> get a job. <laughs> yes. To, to make a great career. Uh, the only thing that demand is um, your career should, um, should, should make us proud. Like should make right. the aspect of pride of, you know, its pupils or whatever. Right. And so one of my colleagues at the time, he was two years ahead of me, was Macron, actually, the current president. Right. Right, right, right. That that says um, a lot about what kind of people this service attracts. Right. And And, and after you finished that, did you, did you, did you finish in the civil service at, at that point or did you? No. So you can stay in the civil service, but you have to, Move uh, to a position that's more operational, like you, right. you become a senior manager in some ministry or whatever. Actually, do you some. Can also, you can also leave and join the private sector. Right. Into politics, like Macron did. Mm. But what I did is that uh, um, I was a bit, you know, disillusioned about the the government at the time. Uh, most people that are attracted to the civil service in France have the impression, uh, come, uh, arrive, arrive there with the impression that that's where you need to be if you really want to make a difference in the world. You, you want to be able to pull these levers to, uh, enact, you know, radical mm-hmm. change. And then mm-hmm. when you're finally on the inside of government, you realize that, oh no, the, the levers are not here or they're here, but you, they're harder to pull they're than stuck. expected. <laughs> they're stuck. And they're stuck, but usually by three things, they're stuck because there's no money left, like the constant deficits and, right. uh, you, you know, resources are really scarce. Um, second, there's a lot of resistance from the inside, like the uh, unions don't want anything to change. Uh, whenever you want to restructure a department, that you, everyone's upset and, there are many problems. And the third problem is that really um, the politicians, so the, those who, uh, who, who whom you work for, are so short-term oriented and so uninterested in making radical change that you end up like working for mediocre people with a short-term view and, you know. Mm. So people mm. like that, you... you, you, you you work in nice offices, uh, you project, you know, um, an impression of power. And, uh, but in fact, it's um, a lot of people are, are quite depressed on the inside because they realize mm. like I, I did all this, worked very hard for most of my youth. 
to end up here, like serving this terrible person that is the minister and mm. having to, 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 to crawl mm. all day long with union leaders without any money to do anything anyway. So mm. that's, so a lot of people leave and, uh, to join the private sector. At least if I can't make a difference, at least I make some money. And, uh, that's what I wanted to do initially, but then, uh, that's when I rejoined the tech world, uh, in effect, that was 2010 at the end of my four years at the inspection. Mm. Um, it was two years after the financial crisis. And as you remember, the financial crisis gave birth to the, or accelerated the rise of this new generation of tech companies, uh, that are now like, uh, household names like Uber, who, which was founded in 2000. Eight, I think, or nine. Mm. Airbnb, which was founded in 2008. Mm. Facebook was founded a, a bit earlier, but they, 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 they only passed the, um, I think the 100,000 users, fresh user threshold sometime in 2008. So mm. those were, you know, rising and, and sending the signal that something was happening in tech. Mm. Um, uh, something new was happening in tech. Like we, we had the dot com bubble and then the burst, uh, and then nothing. And then suddenly it was catching up again and, you know, right. more energy, more, more right. interesting things. And so what I saw there was that, oh, okay. That's, so that's the same thing I experienced 10 years ago, uh, when I was studying computer, com- computer science. And mm-hmm. maybe I could rejoin that world now, now that, that it's taking off again mm. and but what's the way to j- rejoin that world uh, and i figured the the well uh, i had the opportunity to partner with people and found a company at the time so which is what i did and so i had a two-year experience as an entrepreneur ceo tech ceo mm-hmm. um, with a startup that didn't lead anywhere but still provided me with the full uh, full stack experience of you know designing a product, hiring developers, raising funds from angel investors and uh, selling to clients and doing all the things that startup founders uh, are doing, uh, except that was in a ecosystem that was still lagging behind, very immature in Paris. And so uh, with not much to support you as a founder. And so it was bound to fail uh, in effect, but mm. still provided me with some hands-on experience at being a founder and then with some insights as to what needed to be changed changed if we wanted startups to be able to succeed in mm. an ecosystem like Paris. Mm. Which which is where the idea for the family sort of came about from from your perspective then? Yes, exactly. Uh, the, uh, this period is exactly when I met one of my co-founders at the family who was also a founder at the time, had the same kind of problems I had. And we, we, we left our respective companies at about the same time. Uh, he, because he had a conflict with his shareholders and me, because I was just fed up and with no money and my wife was growing impatient and, and stuff. And, and so we, uh, my friend Usama and I started, uh, spending a lot of time together, having lunches in Paris restaurants and 
you know, debriefing our painful experiences as entrepreneurs and trying mm. to figure out what went wrong. And we came up with two conclusions. One, that we were probably not fit to be entrepreneurs. Uh, it requires a very special mindset, mostly the ability to focus on one problem only for a very long period of time, which uh, we both uh, we are both unable to do. Mm. Uh, we're interesting, interested in too many things and mm. like to meet, uh, meet uh, different people. Mm. So we figured that, okay, we'd like to stay in that world, but we, we don't uh, have um, what it takes to be a good entrepreneur. So maybe we should switch to the other side and explore the, the, the world of investment. Right. And so that was the first conclusion. We should become tech investors. And the second conclusion was that this ecosystem is really shitty and, and there's a, a wide gap between what we're reading about what's happening in Silicon Valley and what's actually happening here with the additional problem that a lot of people who are aware that things are not going well in Paris are actually reading blogs from Silicon Valley to try and figure out how you should do things. And then they apply recipes uh, that were... Uh, you know, designed in Silicon Valley and that don't translate into anything concrete right. in Paris. Right. right. And so that's when we had the idea, okay, if we want to launch an investment firm of sorts, we should dedicate part of our attention and focus and resources to, to bridging the gap between, um, well, to, to hedge founders against the, the toxic ecosystem right. that was Paris right. at the time right. and to, 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 to spend enough time and dedicate enough attention to taking what works in Silicon Valley and translating it in so as to fit the local context. Right. So sort of building your own internal culture and environment that uh, protects people from the harm of the external culture and environment that exists in your local Exactly. The market. idea of a bubble in which you can, uh, uh, you can build your company with the appropriate amount of support and with only good practices selected for you by people mm. who have um, uh, dedicated a great deal of attention to spotting what works analyzing what, why it works in Silicon Valley and maybe changing it a bit so as to fit the local context, which is radically different from right, what exists right. in, in the US. That's interesting. I've heard Osama describe it as sort of, and the family is the perfect name, right? Because it's giving people everything that a family yes. gives them, right? So, you know, sort of support, education, access to capital, um, and, you know, uh, that sort of warm um you know all all encompassing um exactly loyalty i, yes. I think is is is, is the and, thing. and benevolence as well like uh, oh you can fail that's that's life we love you anyway yeah like, yeah yeah uh, yeah parents with children yeah 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 it's interesting and how did it, how did you kick things off i think you said it started with sort of dinners and uh, yes, yeah, so the, it was one thing to to decide that we wanted to become investors. It was another thing to actually become investors because we didn't have any personal wealth. Uh, um, well, not, at least not uh, at the level that you need to become an effective angel investor. Mm. And we didn't have any track record, which which meant that we couldn't start a roadshow and approach LPs to ask them to 
invest in our fund. And so we decided that the only way to kickstart our career as investors would be to convince a small group of entrepreneurs to, you know, to, to let us buy um, a very small slice of equity at a very small price in exchange for solving whatever problem they had at, at the time. And so mm-hmm. we, we had this first batch or cohort or group of startups at the time that joined the family in exchange for 1% of their equity mm. was very small. And we raised a bit of money from uh, investors that we knew, uh, mostly individuals, uh, so as to be able to rent a, a, a nice apartment in uh, the center of Paris and hosting many things there. So we experimented with a lot of approaches and formats but one thing that we hosted a lot at the time was dinners, like bringing everyone together just to talk and, you know, having guests um, mm. carefully selected, curated by us mm. uh, so as to share uh, sound advice. And we hosted a lot of workshops. Um, and then we started realize, uh, realizing that we needed to build alliances and build bridges towards other constituencies that might not be part of the startup world per se, but could have a, an influence, whether positive or negative. And so, for instance, we, we started a series of conferences targeted at corporates. Right. So the idea was very simple. We take an industry, say insurance or transportation, and then we invite everyone we know from this industry to a small gathering with wine and uh, you know fruits mm-hmm. and one of us talks for one hour about our vision of where this industry is going considering the fact that startups are, st- are starting to enter the industry mm. um, so that was so there were many many examples but having that apartment that was very central cozy welcoming warm was a nice asset because people were uh, genuinely happy to to join those workshops or dinners and mm. and mm. and we started building that community uh, of you know supporting people whether they were um, founders themselves but also investors corporate executives government people journalists and so mm. on mm. so that was the family's first home do you yes. still do you still have, do you still rent that apartment or? No, actually we had to leave after one year because, um, the landlord asked, asked us to leave because there, there, there were too many people, uh, unique, you know, crossing the courtyard to attend our events and workshops. <laughs> and so that, that created too much noise for the neighbors. So we were asked to leave and then we actually spent a few weeks without an office, which was very unusual at the time. Now it's very common, but at the time, uh, was like unheard of mm. we, we 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 even didn't know if the family would survive this and then we found another place much bigger that we started renting after one year of operations and that had that has been our flagship office until from 2014 to uh, last year when we closed it because of the pandemic right 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 um, and, uh, how, how have things evolved? So you, so you sort of, so you kick things off like that. I guess making money was a challenge here, right? Because you're, you're taking this model of being more of an incubator 
and the the value is really all in the resource and the network and i think that's yes. really interesting because when people talk about y combinator i think it's more about that it's all mm. about that really right it's not really mm -hmm. about the money the money is just yes, a, a small fuel to yeah. keep you going mm. um but i guess for yc deploying that money means they make some management fees right which which keeps the lights on i assume is is part of it i'm sure they also do corporate advisory and, and stuff like that as well. Um, you didn't have that luxury. Um, yes, so we, we didn't have any fund under management, so we, we, we didn't have the luxury, so to speak, to, 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 to leave off uh, management fees. Uh, so again, we raised a bit of money, so burned that money down uh, for as long as we could, uh, like making it, making it last as as long as we could. Uh, we've also been constantly innovating when, when it came to generating revenue. For instance, when we took the, the larger office uh, after one year, so what happened is that we were kicked out of the small apartment, uh, started looking for an office, found this perfect place for us that had, you know, offices and a large space for events and cozy rooms on the side. Um, but we didn't have any money to convince the landlord to rent that to us. And so what we did is that we designed um, an education product. Um, uh, uh, one uh, So a one quarter program to learn to be an entrepreneur targeted at people, um, you know, that only wanted to, to learn to be an entrepreneur on top of having a day job. So it was right. uh, every Saturday for an entire quarter, you would come to the family and learn to be an entrepreneur thanks to courses taught by us and by founders in our portfolio or by mm. friends or good people that know a lot about this. And the price was 2,500 euros for the quarter. Mm. And we sold like may maybe 80 to, to 100 of them in like two or three weeks. Wow. And then gathered the money to pay down uh, the first installment of renting that office. Mm. A little and bit so like on deck fellowship, I guess. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm. Uh, but but not virtual. It was really like everyone gathering every Saturday. We even organized a childcare service on the side to, so that people could bring their kids. Um, so that's an example among many of how um, willing to experiment we were when it came to generating revenue. Uh, we, we also did a lot of, you know, speaking engagements. So Usama and I were sought after speakers at the time in Paris. Mm. Um, and then the following year, we, we launched a consulting practice as part of the family, headed by a dedicated partner that was a very seasoned consultant from, you know, the consulting industry. Right. And so I worked with him uh, for about one year, first to design, you know, the value proposition. So wh what does it mean to offer consulting services as the family? Uh, how do we differ differentiate ourselves from, you know, traditional consulting firms? And then I we did a roadshow to try to convince prospective clients. And when the, the business started to take off, I, you know, 
I moved on to other things and, and, and Miguel, our partner, was the one in charge, but he effectively contributed with that small team on, uh, that was on the side at the family uh, to, to generating, to covering a, a large part of our costs uh, mm. for um, a few years. Mm. And um, so that's another example. But what I want to stress here is that in doing so, chasing revenue, uh, trying to, you know, uh, grow new sources of revenue, we never lost sight of what uh, we thought sh should be our focus, which is taking care of founders in the portfolio. Right. And we, we have seen too many uh, incubators, accelerators, you name it, uh, being taken away from their core business of you know supporting founders uh, in two directions. One is that you you start making the founders pay for the service you, the services you offer, which completely corrupts the relationship mm. because suddenly you're not an investor; you're just a provider of you know real estate or whatever. Mm. And and founders stop trusting you as a right. as an advisor or right. as a partner. So that's one thing we wanted to avoid. So to this day, we've never made our founders pay for anything in the family, mm. except with their shares, mm -hmm. with a, a slice of equity. And the other thing we wanted to avoid is everyone at the family being focused on, you know, corporate clients or uh, sponsoring or anything that was bringing revenue uh, uh, to the debt um, and neglecting what we thought should be the focus of the of the core team mm. so it was not always easy but i think it's something we managed we eventually managed very well to uh, uh, keep um, remain focused on growing a portfolio of very promising startups as opposed to just making revenue on the side and losing sight of of that core business got it and let's talk about those startups a bit. Your your children. Have you got any? Have you got any favorite children? Have you got what's what what? Um, um, and before we get to that, I guess is there sort of a thesis that 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 it is shared amongst all of them? Um, you know, how do you think about which businesses you work with? So yes, the so the thesis is that. Um, I, I, I guess there, are, there would be three pillars if I try to sum it up. So the first pillar is that we are going through a paradigm shift. And so the world is changing, creating many opportunities to build new businesses, harnessing the power of technology that brings in uh, increasing returns to scale. So mm -hmm. a good business can turn into a giant, very successful one. So that's interesting, and that's the first pillar, but th there's nothing original here. But uh, remember that 2013, when we started, it was just two years after Mark Andreessen published his uh, landmark um, editorial about software eating the world. So that idea was still, you know, blurry, not well understood at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, people, uh, a lot of people, especially in Paris, thought that um, technology would change a few things, you know, in entertainment and advertising and, um, you know, and that's it. And, but the rest, you know, healthcare, transportation, construction would remain unchanged. Right. 
by, by the shift. And we, we knew at the time that wasn't the case, that every industry would go through the process of being radically transformed. But it was, but we were the only ones thinking that in Paris. Right, right. And so that's the first pillar. Um, the second pillar is that um, we, you need to adapt the way you support founders depending on the state of the local ecosystem. If the ecosystem is lagging behind, is toxic in many respects, you need to create that bubble to insulate the most ambitious founders from the toxicity of the surrounding ecosystem to make sure that they won't fail, uh, that if they fail, it's because it was meant to be and they were not the right people to tackle this particular challenge at this particular time, as opposed to failing despite being the right person because you, um, um, uh, some angel investor destroyed your cap table from the inside or right. some VC, uh, uh, reneged on a term sheet at the last minute or. So how do you just define that toxicity? Is it, is it, how does it exist? What, how does it manifest in? in France and maybe more broadly in Europe? Uh, it manifests itself uh, in many different ways. I, I, I'd say a lot of it is uh, related to the fact that um, to uh, relates to, is related to the relationship between startups and their investors. Typically in toxic ecosystem, you, you can raise money, but it's usually at too low a valuation from people who are too intrusive into your business, mm. who will ask for too much in exchange for the small amount of money mm -hmm. they're, they're deploying. And you end up paying for it at some point, maybe mm -hmm. later on, but uh, this has consequences. Mm. Um, mm. Another, another part of the toxicity is the um, lack of speed or lack of velocity, I'd say. The fact that so many things that are done in an instant in an ecosystem that works well, both because there are no regulatory frictions, for instance, and because everyone knows that's how things are done. So you don't have to spend an hour to explain that. And there's more competition. Done. Sorry? And there's more competition as well. And right? there's more competition. So if you yes. don't do it, someone else is going to do it Exactly, quickly. exactly. It reminds me a lot of, I mean, those two points, it reminds me a lot of um, what Alex Danko was saying about Canada um, mm. in, in, in a recent piece he wrote. It's exactly the same, right? Like it moves exactly. slow. The angels maybe, you know, through no fault of their own, maybe they come from a background where they've made money in like mining or oil and gas or something that mm -hmm. worked in Canada, mm. right? Which is, or maybe in Europe, it's like they're from consumer goods or one of these sort of old power, internal power businesses that you talk about. Um, and they, they think in that way when they invest. So valuations should be like a multiple of EBITDA, um, yes. you know, and you end up in these sort of things where you've killed the business before it's, it's got off the ground. That slows down the whole ecosystem, means there are fewer exits, which means there's less capital coming in the bottom. Exactly. Like negative feedback loop where the, the whole ecosystem can't get off the ground. Yes. Um, and I, I read Alex's piece and I fully agree with his de depiction of Canada. Uh, it's not the same words that we were using in Paris at the time, but it's exactly the same situation. The, pro mm. the problem of mindset, the problem of practices, 
um, in Silicon Valley, it's not that people have reflected on, oh, yes, this, we, we do it this way because it works better. You mm. do it this way because everyone does it this way. And mm. the good practices have been selected in a Darwinian way by, you know, many trials and errors. And we were using a lot the example like, how much equity should you give your non-founding CTO when you finally find the right person? And in Silicon Valley, the answer is known. Like it's, I, I don't even know it myself, but maybe it's 2% or it's mm. 5% or 1.5%, uh, but mm. that's obvious. And there's no negotiation. Like, oh, do you, so join us as a non-founding CTO and we'll give you 2%. Okay, that's fine. Whereas in, in Paris, if you ask the same question to like, uh, so imagine you have three investors in your company, one from an advertising agency, another is a seasoned consultant, and the third one has made a whole career in consumer goods. If you ask, how much should I give this non-founding CTO, you, you, you end up with three different answers. Right. And two of them are, don't give, don't give them anything because it will dilute us in the cap table. So, mm, mm. and then you end up with that scaled up to every other decision that the founder is making and yes. a situation where they're constantly spending their time on the wrong things, basically. Yes. And imagine all the mistakes and all the time that, that's lost dealing with lawyers who don't really understand startups or bankers who refuse to open a bank account because they, they have the impression that you're not making money or mm. um, none of these problems exist when the ecosystem is mature and well-functioning because startups, it's, it's like you see in the series Silicon Valley, like even the, the doctor is pitching a startup while operating on the patient. Yeah. Uh, so everyone is in has embraced this startup mindset and it creates this, these habits of this is how it's done. Like mm. we, we, we don't even know why it's done that way. It's just mm. how it's done. It mm. makes things smoother and faster. Mm. And, and, and still today we don't have that actually neither in Paris nor in London, nor, especially not in Germany, but yeah. Um, right. Right. And that's a problem. So that would be the second pillar for the family. It's that we need to admit that the ecosystem, the surrounding ecosystem is toxic and we need to do something about it. Otherwise we can work as much as we can with good founders. They will never succeed. You can't succeed against your own ecosystem. Mm. You have to build another one mm. Mm. Um, on the side and hope that at some point the two merge because right. Uh, the good practices finally win over right. the rest. Right, 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 right. It's and it's so, interesting. Sorry, yeah, go, on. go ahead. No. The other thing I was going to say is it's it's interesting in in Europe because it feels like these cultures and these ecosystems are starting to emerge in like pockets, mm. sort of separately, and maybe they do merge eventually. Um, and when they do, it will benefit everyone. But it's a bit mm. of like a it's almost like a game theory problem, right? Because the incumbents in the pockets from an investor perspective don't really want it to grow outside of their control because they probably oh, benefit yeah. a little bit from the information advantage of knowing all the people, controlling which deals they invest in, all that sort of thing. Mm. So uh, it would probably be in their interest for it to be more open, but 
they're not going to be the ones to initiate. No, no. And we, we've had many experiences like that. So, for instance, um, when the first group of startups joined the family in 2013, uh, our message at the time was pretty radical. It was, to sum it up, it was like everyone sucks. We're the only ones that get it. <laughs> and so you should join the family if you want to succeed. And those very ambitious and excellent founders decided to do so because they were convinced. But then they started to approach VCs to raise funds and the VCs would say, well, since you're part of the family and the, the family says we suck, maybe we won't invest in your startup after mm -hmm. all. Like we'll make you pay for joining these guys. And so the founders came back to us um, and said, oh, we made, we made a mistake joining you guys. Now we can't raise funds from those people who, whom you insulted. Um, and so we decided to act on that and to solve the problem once and for all by building relationships with VCs in London. And that's where we realized the amount of work that was needed to solve the problem because we already knew Index Ventures who had invested in the family early on. Uh, through Index Ventures, we, has, we had started to build, a, uh, to grow a wide network of friendly investors in London. We were visiting every once in a while to cultivate those relationships. But when we said uh, to the founders in, uh, in our portfolio, okay, but that's not a problem. In any case, you don't want to raise from these shitty VCs in Paris. Just buy a Eurostar ticket and go and pitch Martin at Index and so-and-so at, mm. at, at these other firms in London. And then we saw the people like... Uh, being, oh, but no, but the Eurostar, it's, it costs so much money and I have to take a hotel room in London and I don't even know how to pitch in, to pitch in English. And so that's when you realize, right. okay, okay. So it's one thing to have built these relationships with London-based VCs. There's still some work to do on the other side to prepare those founders who don't realize they have what it takes to pitch uh, those VCs and, mm. and some of them eventually ended up raising funds in London, mm. Mm. but it took a lot of work uh, prepping them and convincing right. them that, yes, you need to pay for that Eurostar ticket. We know it's very expensive, but it's worth it. Right, right, right. Um, and then, so, so the two pillars we've got, we've got the, the, the sort of software is eating the world the toxicity of the ecosystem and protecting your founders from that. And then what, what's the third thing? you? you so the at? third pillar is um, what has long been a, like our slogan or baseline. It's that uh, anyone can become an entrepreneur. Uh, and the idea was that um, the, 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 the French ecosystem at the time was selecting founders using, you know, the, the old frameworks of the school system, like, oh, you went to the best schools, so you, you're probably a good entrepreneur, and so we'll fund your startup, as opposed to, oh, um, you have the wrong color, uh, skin color, and you don't seem to have attended the best university, so maybe not, or maybe prove me that your startup is going somewhere, mm. because I'm not sure, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, so, um, so what we decided to do is to become completely blind as to the background and, you know, um, specificities of, of, of any entrepreneur that would approach us. 
And um, despite some of us being the pure back byproducts of this cool system that's highly selective and meritocratic, so to speak. And to these days, um, many people that I work with at the family, either my colleagues or entrepreneurs in our portfolio, I don't even know what school they attended. Mm. Like it's something we've com completely erased from interesting the the way we're interacting among uh, among others mm. and and entrepreneurship is a good school for that because it's actually very meritocratic either you succeed at building your company and you make a lot of money and everyone respects you and nobody really knows what school you attended when you were young yeah or you fail and you well you're a failure and so um Uh, so, so we wanted to create that spirit, that mindset within the family, as opposed to, you know, uh, too many entrepreneurs in Paris at the time and still today. Like you went to the best school, you found a startup, you have an easy time raising funds because you went to the best school. Your startup is not that great, but you're still, you know, invited in every salon to speak about entrepreneurship and you're still... Mm -hmm covered by journalists who see you as the epitome of the local ecosystem mm. and it's not the right role models mm. Mm. yeah and it's sort of just a self-perpetuating cycle isn't it right like if yeah. you put enough capital resource network and smart people around anyone they they're going to build something that hopefully you know looks like a success to mm, some yeah. extent yes um, It's, but it doesn't mean that's an optimal allocation of capital in, in, in that economy. No, and they can only go as far. Um, they can only, only go so far. So I have, I'm not sure if I know the right names in English, but I have a friend, a French guy who's in California who said, well, um, you, um, American entrepreneurs are like greyhounds. They're very fit. They run very fast and they're trained from an early age to, you know, to be extremely competitive because the right. goal is to win that race. Right. Whereas French entrepreneurs are, are like golden retrievers. Uh, you want to exhibit them um, in a salon because <laughs> they have, you know, uh, because right. they're beautiful right. and, and they don't make a mess. Right. Um, And so they're more a piece of exhibit than a machine uh, than a, a, designed to do a, yes, a exactly. job. And, and, and that's all the problem. So I wrote about that in a, in a, in an essay you can find on my newsletter called France as revealed by its elite. Um, it's the fact that if the goal of a tech founder is to go from zero to a hundred, In Paris, you're acclaimed as a, uh, as a successful entrepreneur as soon as you reach maybe eight or 10, provided you come from the right, you have the right background and you're causing up to the right people. Mm -hmm. And, and this is why there are golden retrievers as opposed to greyhounds. It's because mm -hmm. if you have the impression of having succeeded when you reach eight or 10, why bother, you know, suffering? to make the rest of the journey up yeah. to a hundred. It's sort of culturally embedded as well in Europe, right? Because we're mm -hmm. not new world people culturally, right? Like America is all, is built on this whole ideology of 
the frontier mentality and you know manifest yes. destiny and whatever and that has its problems as well but mm. um it certainly means that they don't really care who you are or where you're from it's what can you do and i think mm -hmm. that's something we should admire and it always frustrates me um so i grew up my parents are irish and then you know irish people have this thing where they chop people down if they're doing well you know and yeah, uh, it's not something you should be proud of. And, you know, you're showing off if you, if you've made money and that sort of thing. And I always sort of admired that the Americans were like very willing to do well and they have this very competitive culture. And, and it's, you know, it's all about what you're willing to go and do and how hard you're willing to work. And it feels like we can definitely borrow the good parts of, mm. of that culture and apply it in Europe. And I think it exists in the heads of different people. Mm. And, you know, what I've always found fascinating about what you guys are doing is it's like, okay, how do you put those people together? And then, as you say, you know, create a bubble and protect them from the, the harm of, of the world outside. Mm. I'm conscious we've only got sort of eight to 10 minutes left. Um, does anyone have any, any, I was hoping to talk a little bit about, about policy and politics and stuff like that. I don't know if we'll, we'll get to it. Does anyone have any, any, any questions for, for Nicola that they'd like to ask? Um, Feel free now to just uh, unmute. Sahil, have you got a question? I've got, I've got a sort of observation that's in line with um, what, what I think both of you were just saying, and, and it's been a super interesting conversation, on the kind of difference when fundraising in America, uh, just difference when, when, you're, when you're having conversations with entrepreneurs uh, or even people at corporates in America, they always end with, who else can I introduce you to? Or you must speak to X, Y, or Z. And it's, it's sort of like proactive, generous and, and very forthcoming. Uh, and it just feels like it's sort of like in the cultural, it's sort of like just embedded in, in the sort of entrepreneurial culture there. And here it can be at, at worst, like pulling teeth. Uh, you know, and, and kind of at best you're, you're asking, you know, you feel like you're, you're kind of going begging bowl in hand asking for introductions. And it's been very striking both when kind of raising money in for founders factory when we've had, um, portfolio companies speaking to uh, investors there versus here and the difference is kind of night and day and it's just then you know the uh, kind of virtuous circle in a sense you can see why um, you know you can see why the ecosystems are so kind of different um, just an observation how do you think it's one of the many features um, that really make a difference at the aggregate level yeah, how do you think we, we, we break through that in Europe? I mean, how do we build, I guess the, the, the theme of this is how do we build a better entrepreneurial ecosystem in Europe? How do we make the culture that the family has been embodying for, for seven years something that spreads, you know, uh, across the ecosystem? Is, is there some, some way? Well, my, well yes, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to pick up on something you said, which was that, you know, that people in San Francisco haven't sort of like meditated on what's the right approach. They just sort of like do, they, they follow what's, what they kind of like see around them. Mm. And so in a sense, I think kind of, you know, if between us, we can try and, and set the, the best examples or, or do what we'd like to see if we were on the other side of the table, hopefully enough people start to kind of take, um, you know, um, learn from that or, or, or pay that forward. Kind of consciously or, or subconsciously. Mm. I agree. Uh, actually, I, I was very impressed by a conversation I once had with a guy in, in Silicon Valley who told me, well, you're stuck in these conversations about what's the Silicon Valley of Europe? Is it London? Is it Paris? Is it, you know, Amsterdam? Is it Berlin? 
you shouldn't care about that. Now, um, th there's no point in everyone being in the same place anymore because the internet has made it easy to communicate and to wire money and to do anything that you, you, you have to do if you're part of a startup ecosystem. So instead of trying to de decide uh, what's the Silicon Valley of Europe, just decide that the Silicon Valley of Europe is all the people, uh, like-minded people that are scattered across the continent, but effectively connected because they do business together. Um, and this is why coming back from that trip, which was like, I know, three or four years ago, I decided to invest a lot more in building relationships across borders in Europe, in overcoming the frictions and the obstacles that are, you know, differences when it comes to language and culture and so on, and to to try and build pieces of the, the, the pan-European platform that we effectively need to, if we want to realize that, yes, there are people confronted to the same problems everywhere in Europe, and there's no reason those people can't be connected and work together to solve that problem at the continental level. Yeah, so, it, it seems but it's never hard truer than now. Yeah. It seems never truer than now, or maybe the pandemic is the opportunity, right? Like, because we have to embrace this sort of mindset yes. and, and make but it. It's, it's definitely true, true that the pandemic has proved that you, you don't, you really don't need to be in the same, in the same place to do business together. And, and now VCs are doing deals over Zoom and that's a, that, that is becoming a common practice. Mm. So we, we have this opportunity. Uh, but it's still very hard. Like uh, That's an anecdote, but uh, I used to live in London for five years. So, um, And a lot of people uh, from London would send me a message like, oh, I'm in Paris today. Could we, grab, could we have a coffee? I'd love to visit your office and so on. And I said, but sorry, I'm not in Paris. I live in London, actually. So when you come back, let's have that coffee uh, in Islington or Shoreditch right, right, or whatever. Right. And because people assume that, oh, you're French, so you must be in Paris. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. And, and, and we have to, uh, uh, an entire education to make, to make people realize that no, the, your nationality and the language you speak and the country you live in and the ecosystem you're a part of are four different things. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if, you know, part of all of this problem is just, time as well right like i'm sure for you and your experience from 2000 through to where you are now you're seeing just a radical difference in like the number of people the quality of the people the level of enthusiasm and energy and then maybe also like the extent perhaps to which younger people tend to speak english more and more uh, i don't know mm -hmm. if that's you know changing in france maybe even in, in places like that gradually as well um well, at least not... go on go on not really, actually. So we, we made the early on in the history of the family, we made the choice to um, uh, focus on English for any public expression. So uh, started writing in English, uh, experimented with uh, doing the speaking in English on YouTube and so on. Mm. And um, along the way, we lost a big chunk of our French speaking audience. Uh, including people are still to this day are posting comments on the YouTube channel to say, well, why, why the English language? Like you're French, 
most of your audience is French speaking. Why English? And yes, we have to make the case that yes, our English is faulty, our accent isn't perfect, but um, if we stick to French as a language, we'll be stuck in France forever and we will never be able to build those bridges and grow I these connections. That's a really tough conversation to have with a lot of French people as well, right? Because they're so proud of their yeah. national culture, identity, the language, you know, you have all these sort of institutions that support the, mm. the French language. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's, you know, sort of, I, I, there's a chip on their shoulder for, for a lot of people with that. I, I imagine. Um, well, look, Nicola, it's been, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Um, Guys, if you, if you want to reach out to Nicola, feel free. I can, I can, uh, make an introduction provided he's happy with that. Um, sure. when's the next cohort of the family, uh, launching? When can people apply? Uh, so they, they can apply, uh, on a continuous basis, but we're currently in the middle of the current batch. Uh, and actually we, we just switched models. So before that, we didn't have cohorts or batches uh, per se. Like the, there was no fixed time with the demo day at the end because mm. for many reasons actually um, and with the pandemic we decided that and with VCs learning to do deals over, the, over Zoom we decided that it was now possible to connect entrepreneurs in the family's portfolio with only the best investors out there even if they are not local ones and so we decided to switch to a fixed term which right. we call a batch uh, but it's currently the first the very first one so it's going very well oh, okay. we're very happy uh, the demo day will be early in march and we still don't know to this day to be frank because we're still adjusting a few things if there'll be a new batch in april or only in september that is two batteries a year or or three. maybe or maybe three or four okay yes great but well, uh, you shouldn't wait if you if you want to connect with us. You shouldn't wait, and they they can and apply at right family.com, right or dot co dot co. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, look, it was an absolute pleasure, and uh, yeah, Thanks. let's stay in touch. Absolutely. Take care, everyone. Thanks. Cheers. Bye bye.